Good morning, City Church. Uh, thank you so much for joining us again this morning. Even though you can't be with us personally, you're joining us online, and we're really grateful for that. And also want to just say thank you so much for your continued financial support of City Church. You guys have always been great about that, and we, we do continue to thank you for that. You know, if you've been with us since the beginning of the year, you know that we've been in a series on the book of Galatians. It's a fantastic book. I wanted to finish that series, but, you know, I think we, we probably will sometime later this year. But I think we all know that the thing that's on our minds the most right now is the coronavirus and the effect that it's having all across the world. You know, when you look around, when you, when you listen to people, when you look at their faces, you know that we're a culture that's living in fear, a great deal of fear. I think when we're living in fear, what we need is hope, and we need the kind of hope that no politician can give us, no pundit can give us, not even a cheerful pastor who wants us to ground our hope in his cheerfulness. We need a kind of hope that's transcendent, a hope that only God can give us, a hope that isn't all oh, the kind of hope that changes on the basis of the latest press conference or that changes on the basis of the stock market or uh, the statistics, a uh, kind of hope that changes with the statistics of, of a curve and whether it's flattened or not. No, we, we need a transcendent, eternal hope. And so this morning, we're going to begin a new series from the 23rd Psalm, and it's called uh, Fear No Evil. And you know, the, the thing about the 23rd Psalm, the reason I chose it is that I think we need a passage of Scripture that, uh, that we can go back to on a regular basis. We need something that we can memorize, that we can recite over and over and over again to ourselves in the days and the weeks and perhaps even uh, the months ahead. The 23rd Psalm has been a source of enormous hope and comfort for people uh, throughout the centuries. And so this morning as we begin this new series, I want to ask you if you have a Bible with you, turn with me in it to the 23rd Psalm, Psalm uh, 23. And I think the very first thing that you're greeted with in the 23rd Psalm is that the 23rd Psalm is a Psalm of David. Now, what do we know about David? Well, David was one of the great leaders of the Bible. He was a king over the nation of Israel, a man whom, uh, he was a man whom God, God described as a, as a man after his own heart. And yet, like each of us, David was extremely complex. There were moments, like the moment he penned in this Psalm, uh, where his faith soared, and where he was caught up in the closeness that he felt uh, with God. There were other moments, though, where David wrestled with and where he lost battles with his own self-centeredness and his own lusts and his own urges, and where his capacity for toxicity uh, was seen at its worst. And I'm thinking, of course, and if many of you know all about this, I'm thinking, of course, of his affair with Bathsheba. Despite the fact that David had multiple wives already, um, David had an affair with Bathsheba and then attempted to cover it all up with the murder of her husband. That's the man who penned this psalm. Now, how in the world do you explain that? A man like that could pen a psalm like the 23rd Psalm. I think the only way to explain that is to understand that all of us are far more complex than the binary categories that we like to sort ourselves into, good and bad, and believer or non-believer, secular or saint. We're all a mixture of both. And so as we read it and we study this over the next few weeks, let's not lose sight of the fact that we're just as capable of the toxicity of this man, just as complex as, uh, as David was. 
The Bible isn't the, the record of perfect people who reach out to God, but a perfect God who reaches out to deeply imperfect, inconsistent, extremely complex people. And so what I want to do, let's, let's start by reading the passage as a whole, and then we're going to come back and we're going to make some observations about it. Uh, Psalm 23, a psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, David writes. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his namesake. And even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. And he concludes with this, Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I want to take some time uh, this morning, and I want to focus in on this word fear that's right here at the middle of this passage in verse 4, because that's the purpose for which this psalm was written, to comfort us in the fear that we feel uh, even now. In fact, not just this passage, but the Bible has a great deal to say about fear and anxiety. In fact, the word that is translated fear in this passage, the Hebrew word yara, is a word that's used 313 times in the Old Testament alone. God cares about you, and He cares about the fear that you feel today. And as I said just a moment ago, we're a nation living in a great deal of fear. You can feel it. I mean, it's, it's palpable. It's, it's heavy. It's like, a, it's like a dark cloud that's hanging over us. How, how long is this thing going to last? How bad is it going to get? We're going to see in the next week or two an exponential increase in our area's cases of the coronavirus like other places in the country have. Are our local hospitals going to be overflowing with the sick and the dying as we see happening in New York City? Will, will we know people who have the coronavirus? Will we know people who've died from it? See, all of us are thinking all of these things some of you fear whether you'll be able to keep your business afloat, whether you'll be able to pay your employees. Some of you are fearful of whether you will lose your job. Maybe you've already lost your job. Fearful of whether you'll be able to provide for your family. All of those are reasonable fears. And let's be clear, the Bible, you know, the Bible is very realistic about life. God isn't flippant, uh, flippant or unrealistic about life in a fallen world. And so things like, you know, social distancing and, and washing hands and not meeting in groups of people more than 10, all of the things that we're being told to do and that I hope that, that you're following, that's all wise. And in, isn't anything faithless about any of that? God isn't flippant about fear or what it's like living in a fallen world. So then what, what does David mean when he says, I will fear no evil. Well, here's the thing. He can't mean that he never feels fear because there are other passages in the Psalms where David does clearly feel fear. For instance, here's one, Psalm 13. David writes, How long, O Lord, will you, will you forget me forever? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and hear me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. 
lest my enemy say I have prevailed against him. Now, see, why do you pray that prayer unless you're fearful of being forgotten forever, of dying, of having your enemy triumph over you? In fact, in this, in this very psalm, Psalm 23, in verse 4, when, when David says that, that he walks through the, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. Why bring up a dark valley, or as some translations call it, the valley of the shadow of death, death, if that's not something that produces the emotion of fear in the first place? You see, I think if, if you look closely enough at this passage, you'll see that David really isn't talking about the emotion of fear. No, not, not, not really. The word that's translated fear here is a verb. It's not a feeling. In other words, he's saying that he will not live in fear. Uh, he will not be controlled by fear. And you see, that, that is God's concern for you about fear. That's the problem with fear. Not that you feel the emotion of fear sometimes. There's nothing wrong with that. It's that fear, here it is, it's that fear, if not resisted, will take over your life. Fear, if not resisted, will take over your life. And when fear does take over your life, it's debilitating. Here, here's a quick list. Let me show you a quick list of things that fear uh, wants to do in your life. First thing is that fear wants to make you hopeless, wants to make you hopeless. You see, fear, fear wants you to believe that evil is ultimate and absolute, that there is no God who is sovereign over evil and who can redeem even the worst evil for good. The Apostle Paul writing in the New Testament says, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. You see, fear denies that. Fear wants you to believe that evil is ultimate and absolute, and so it wants to make you hopeless. Besides making you hopeless, fear also wants to make you grim. Fear makes you grim. Because evil is absolute and ultimate, then there's no good God. Fear wants you to believe that there's nothing but bad outcomes out there. It makes you joyless, and it makes you grim. It also makes you think catastrophically. Fear makes you think catastrophically. Not only are there bad outcomes out there because evil is ultimate and absolute, there's also no scale of bad outcomes. Imagine a, imagine a scale of, of zero to, to 100 where zero represents uh, good outcomes and, and, and 100 represents bad outcomes. Fear makes you think that there are no outcomes that are just, say, I don't know, 55s or, or 60s. They're all 100s. They're all as bad as they could possibly be. Fear makes you think catastrophically. Besides that, it also makes you a coward. Fear makes you a coward. Again, because fear wants you to think that evil is absolute and ultimate, fear wants you to believe that there's no point in taking a risk or living heroically. Whatever happens to you will be bad, it will be as bad as it possibly can be, and it will destroy you. That's how fear wants to make you think, and it makes you a coward. Fear also makes you uh, self-centered. I don't know. Just think about the run on toilet paper in America. Do I even have to say anything more than that? Fear makes you self-centered. It makes you selfish, focused only on yourself. A fear also makes you controlling. It makes you controlling. 
Again, because fear wants you to believe that evil is absolute and ultimate. Fear wants you to believe that it's up to you to control everyone and everything in your world. It makes you controlling. Fear also makes you, also makes you lonely. You know, there's only so many people and so many things that you can, that you can control. So you, you've got to shrink your world uh, to survive. It, it, fear isolates you. It makes your world small. It makes you lonely. Fear makes you also, uh, it makes you lose touch with reality. Living as if evil is ultimate and absolute, that's not reality. There is a good and gracious God who is sovereign over evil. So it makes you lose touch with reality. Fear makes you, uh, it makes you indecisive, scared to make any decision because what if the worst happens, you know? It'll be crushing if the worst happens. There can be no good that comes out of it. It will destroy my life. And so you can't make a decision. It makes you indecisive. Now, I'm sure you could add a lot of things to that list, things that I haven't thought of, but I think you get my point. That fear, if not resisted, will take over your life and it will be debilitating. And so the question is, how do you resist fear taking over your life? How do you get to a place like David where you say, I will, I will fear no evil? In other words, I will not be controlled by evil. I may feel fear sometimes, but I won't be controlled by fear. How do you get to that point? When you wake up at 3 o'clock worried sick, or when you watch the news about the coronavirus and you feel overwhelmed by fear, how do you resist it? How do you, how do you keep it from taking over? I, I, I need to issue a caveat here. There are some of you who are saying, yes, good, this is, this is what I need. I don't want to live in fear. I, I don't want fear to take over my life. Give, give, me the, give me the solution. The thing is you need to know, I don't have a quick fix for you this morning, something that will work by tomorrow. This passage has an antidote to fear for sure, but... It's not a quick fix. It's not a, it's not a Band-Aid. It's a habit of the heart that has to be developed and cultivated. And over time, it will change. It will absolutely change the way that you experience life's valleys. But it's not a quick fix. It's not a Band-Aid. But there's no time like the present to start. And so let me just kind of summarize what I want to say next in this way. When you're when you're in a dark valley, it's 3 o'clock in the morning and you're afraid that fear is going to take over your life when you're worried sick, you have to remind yourself who your shepherd is. You have to remind yourself who your shepherd is. And I know that sounds cliche, but I want you to know something. I want you to notice that everything David says in this psalm flows out of this very first phrase, the Lord is my shepherd. It's the identity of his shepherd that moves him to say, I will fear no evil. Now, I want to develop that thought, but before I do, I want to say something to those of you who live uh, with anxiety disorders. There are some of you who are watching or who are listening to this sermon who know firsthand how debilitating, how crippling fear can be. Your life every day is a battle against controlling fear. I want to reassure you that nothing I'm going to say in the next few minutes trivializes that. God isn't flippant, as I've said, about your emotions. Look, there, there are many people who live 
with a baseline of fear that is much, much higher than others. Think about it like this. Some people have a baseline of fear that, let's say it's at this level. Uh, Maybe it spikes occasionally based on various things, but it drops back to here. Some people, though, have a baseline of fear that is way up here. Maybe it's genetic. Maybe you were physically or emotionally abused as a child where physical and emotional fear became a tool to control you or to manipulate you. Maybe, I don't know, maybe you were traumatized by things you experienced or you saw. And you live as a result of those things. You live with with what psychologists and clinicians would call PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Your fear level, the base level of your fear is, is way up here. I want you to understand that it's not wrong to take medicine for that. It's not unspiritual to do so. You you may need to take medication for the rest of your life. It's nothing you need to feel guilty about or or ashamed of. In fact, I I would argue that many of you who live with anxiety disorders are, are more courageous, more full of faith than the rest of us because you have to fight it all day, every day. But I also want to say this, no amount of medicine can take away the root causes of anxiety and fear, like the cause underneath all of the other causes. There's a great deal more to say about David Shepherd and about the character of David Shepherd in the weeks ahead, but I want to give you two words today, two words today that you can remind yourself of over and over this week that gave David peace and hope in the midst of his darkest valleys. And they come out of the character of his shepherd. And the first word is the word invulnerable. It's the word invulnerable. Now, even if you're a person who doesn't live with an anxiety disorder, fear is still stalking your soul, still wants to take over your life, and maybe you sense that more now during this pandemic than ever before. I saw a statistic the other day that said that each successive generation in America lives with three times more fear than the generation that preceded it. Think about that for a moment. Three times more fear than every generation that preceded it. We've got far more comforts in America, far more prosperity, far more advancements in science and technology than previous generations, and the coronavirus notwithstanding far more advancements in medicine than previous generations, yet we live with three times more anxiety than every generation before us. And on the one hand, that seems counterintuitive to me, but I think if you reflect on it a little deeper, it actually makes perfect sense. You know, previous generations understood their vulnerability to life more than we do. They knew life was hard. They understood that, you know, if they had seven kids, um, maybe only four would survive. If they made it out of childhood, starvation or war or some other kind of uh, plague would would shorten their lives. Many, Many people, because of that, previous generations focused their hopes and dreams on the next life, not on this life. But in Western cultures today, prosperity and advances in science and technology have convinced us that we should be living our best lives now, that we should seize the day, 
because this life is all there is. And so this life and the people and the things in it become the focus of our attention. They become our hopes and dreams. And most of these are, are good things. A nice house, a, you know, a healthy bank account, great kids, a, a meaningful career. Nothing wrong with any of those things. The problem is that we turn those things, those temporal things, into ultimate things. And in fact, life itself can become an ultimate thing. If this life is all there is, if this is where I'm going to live my best life, then I can't lose it. I've got to keep it. But anything that's temporal is vulnerable. And here's, here's what I'm trying to say about the cause beneath all of the other causes of fear and anxiety. Our fears are directly proportionate to the vulnerability of the ultimate things in our lives. Our fears are directly proportionate to the vulnerability of the temporal things that we turn into ultimate things. Or, or in the language of this psalm, the things that we make Let's put it this way. The things that we make our shepherds. Our fears are directly proportionate to the vulnerability of the shepherds in our lives. Uh, look at the first word of this psalm. Let's look at the first word of this psalm. Uh, David says, the Lord. It's the, actually the Hebrew word uh, that he uses that's translated the Lord. It's the word Yahweh. And that's significant because... It's the name by which God referred to himself when he was talking to Moses long before this psalm was ever written. Moses was being told by God to go to Pharaoh and to say, let my people go. Moses was afraid of Pharaoh. He had good reason to be. Pharaoh was the most powerful and apparently insanely narcissistic person in the land at that time. Moses did not want to go. And so he asks God, he says, who shall I tell Pharaoh is sending me? And God replies with this name, Yahweh. Tell him Yahweh sent you. And just before he gives Moses this name, he, he describes himself to Moses in this way. He says, I am who I am. And there's a lot wrapped up in that phrase, but the thing that I want you to understand is that God is referring to himself with this name, Yahweh, as self-existent. No one created him, and no one can take him down. In other words, there's nothing that threatens his existence. He is a permanent fixture in the universe. He is invulnerable to evil, as opposed to all of the things that we tend to make ultimate in our lives. The other shepherds that we look to, if the Lord is your shepherd, you don't have to worry that something is going to take him down. No evil can take him down. Nothing can take him away. Nothing can defeat him. You see, the way that fear takes over your life is through the vulnerability of your shepherds, the things that you hold so dear that, that you put all of your hopes and your dreams in. We tend to put our hopes and dreams in temporal, vulnerable things. And then an undetectable virus comes along and it exposes those temporal things and their vulnerability. And then panic ensues as the foundation upon which we have built all of our hopes and dreams begins to crumble. Think about some of the things 
that we idolize in our culture. For instance, we idolize science and technology. That's a good thing. But we tend to turn it into an ultimate thing that we put all of our hopes and dreams on. Did you ever think that a microscopic virus could so shut the whole world down in the 21st century? Sure, back in, back in 1918, it made sense that the Spanish flu could wreak such havoc. But in 2020, with all of the advances in science and technology that we have, it could really take the whole world down? Who would have thought that? We idolize athletes in sports. Where are they right now? Can you believe that the NCAA tournament was, was brought down, that the NBA, Major League Baseball, the Olympics even, have all been shut down because of this microscopic virus? How about Wall Street? Oh my, we idolize the economy, don't we? It's a place of such importance, all of our hopes and dreams wrapped up in our 401ks and our investments. A microscopic virus reversed all of the historic highs which, to which the market had soared and has people all over the world panicked right now. Here's another one, physical fitness. We idolize health and, and fitness. Most of us can't even get into a gym right now. Careers. How many of us are living right now in the fear of losing a job, a, a business? I, I could go on and on and on with stuff here. But the point is that when we turn temporal things into ultimate things, our vulnerability, our fear increases because they're vulnerable. Those things are vulnerable. Who or what are your shepherds? Who, what would you say you put your trust in, your hope, your, your dream? And it's an important question. Because our fears are directly proportionate to the vulnerability of the temporal things in our lives that we turn into ultimate things. The way you resist fear of taking over your life is to remind yourself that your shepherd is invulnerable to evil. He is not at this moment cowering in a corner over the coronavirus. He is not meeting with his advisors. He is not distancing himself from evil, uh, excuse me, from us. No evil can overcome him. No evil can erase him. His purposes in your life, in your children's lives, in human history cannot and will not be thwarted because he is invulnerable to the evils of life, including this evil that we're facing right now, the coronavirus. Invulnerable. That's one of the characteristics of David's shepherd that gave David hope in the midst of the darkest valleys. And it's a word that you would be wise to remember over and over and over again in the days and the weeks ahead. There's a second word here that I want to give you. And it too comes from this name that God revealed himself to Israel by, Yahweh. And it's the word that David uses in this first uh, word in the psalm, the Lord. The word translated Yahweh again. And again, it's no accident that David uses this word Yahweh to describe the Lord. There are other words for God that David could have used, but he uses the word Yahweh because that name is God's covenant name. Our God is a covenant-making God. Before Moses came 
uh, on the scene, God had made a, a promise, a, a commitment to a man by the name of Abraham that he would build a great nation out of Abraham's descendants and that through them uh, he would send a Messiah who would rescue the world from sin. Those descendants uh, became the nation of Israel. And so when God revealed himself to Moses before he sent Moses to Pharaoh, he uses the word Yahweh because it reveals his commitment to Abraham all of those years before. He's saying, when he speaks to Moses, I remember the promise that I made to Abraham. Now that promise, you need to understand, had nothing to do with Abraham's character, nothing to do with Abraham's goodness, nothing to do with Abraham's performance, nothing at all. Nothing about Abraham's obedience. Had to do with God's love, God's graciousness, God's commitment to this man. And so God is telling Moses that he's going to rescue Israel out of faithfulness to his promise to Abraham all those years before. That's God's character, to save and to redeem because he was faithful. And so he's going to do that with Israel, but also not because of Israel's commitment to him. It wasn't because of their obedience. In fact, God didn't even give Israel a, a, a law until after he had rescued them. And then as soon as he gave them the law, they promptly began to disobey it. But God stayed faithful to his commitment to them. All through the years, all through the centuries. And when David writes this, he remembers that. He remembers God's faithfulness to Israel. But he does something, he does something very unique here. He doesn't just say that the that the faithful, committed Lord is our shepherd. He personalizes it. He says, He is my shepherd. And David's theology is not that his commitment to God is the basis for God's faithfulness to him, nor David's obedience. David is convinced that God's commitment to him is based in God's faithfulness, not David's. Do you understand that? A lot of times when I'm talking to people, I hear people talk about people who are committed Christians. But do you understand that Christianity isn't about your commitment to God, but it's about God's commitment to you? The reason I mention this is because in times like these, in times of crisis, I think one of the things that keeps people from turning to God in the midst of crisis is our fear that, that our imperfections, that our imperfect commitment to Him, that our disobedience in some way, shape, or form, something that we've done, it's a fear that it will keep Him from hearing our prayers or from responding to them. In other words, in other words what, what we think is that He's saying, well, look, you, know, you, you made your bed, now, now lie in it. But when David uses this word, Yahweh is my shepherd, what he's saying to us is that not only do you not need to fear that Yahweh will be taken down by evil, but you don't need to fear that your own evil can separate you from God. Because the basis for his commitment to you is not your goodness, but it's his faithfulness, his character. You know, it's no coincidence that the New Testament picks up this metaphor of, of the shepherd in referring to Jesus. It refers to Jesus as the good shepherd. 
Jesus is the shepherd to whom this psalm ultimately points. And in Jesus Christ, God enters into, you know, we said that he's invulnerable, but God in the person of Jesus Christ enters into the experience of human vulnerability and he suffers the worst that evil has to offer at the cross. At the cross, Jesus walked through the, the darkest valley, the valley of the shadow of death, and he did it for you and me. But as proof of God's invulnerability, three days later, he was raised from the grave. Jesus was raised from the grave. You know, you can, I said this last week, you can talk all about, uh, you can talk all you want about how committed you are to someone, but it's not until you sacrifice something precious that that commitment is really seen. Christ was willing to suffer the cross for you, to sacrifice his life for you. Is there anything, is there anything he wouldn't walk through with you? Anything at all? It was this idea that so moved the Apostle Paul that he wrote this in the New Testament. He wrote, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced, he says, that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, and the coronavirus would be included in that, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the commitment that God has to you in the person of Jesus Christ. And listen, Listen, it's not that the coronavirus can't hurt you. I can't promise that it won't, and anyone who does promise that is lying to you. But I can promise this, that if Christ is your shepherd, it can't hurt you ultimately because Jesus Christ has conquered death. You don't have to be, you don't have to live controlled by fear. I mean, you'll feel fear. That's normal. You don't have to be controlled by fear. Because whatever you or I go through in the days and the weeks, maybe even the months ahead, all of the resources of God will be available to us, whatever it is that we go through. You will not go through it alone. We will not go through it alone as a church. Even in death, the good shepherd will be by your side and will take you to the other side where there's no more sickness, no more mourning, and no more death. That's the invincibility of the Good Shepherd. That's the commitment of the Good Shepherd. Remind yourself of those two words in the days ahead invulnerability and commitment. That's the Shepherd that you should trust. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, it's very possible that people who are hearing this or, or seeing this today have never. They've never heard about you. Uh, they've never come to a place where they have made you their shepherd. And so I pray tonight, uh, Lord Jesus Christ, I pray this morning, Lord Jesus Christ, that you would bring them to a place where they recognize their need for you, recognize their sin, 
that they would place their trust in you, Lord Jesus Christ, as their Savior, or in the language of the 23rd Psalm, as their shepherd. Lord, for those who have trusted in you, I pray that even though this isn't a quick fix, in the days and the weeks and the months ahead, that they would begin to cultivate a trust in you as their shepherd, the invulnerable shepherd, whom fear cannot, bring, whom evil cannot bring down, and the committed shepherd. Nothing can separate us from you. And Lord, let us remind ourselves of those over and over and over again. And would you bring comfort and hope? to our fearful hearts. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Good Shepherd.